Hi everyone, James here. Now, before we start this week's show, which is another working from home episode where we recorded in all of our different homes around the country, I just want to say I hope everyone's all right. I hope that you're all staying indoors. I hope you're all looking after your family and friends. But there's just one little bit of news um, that I wanted to say, um, which we mentioned last week, but that is that we have re-released the second year of No Such Things as Fish for free on the internet. So if you go to the place where you normally get your podcasts, you will see episodes 53 to 104, and they were not there in the past. So there's hours and hours of fun on there. Hope you enjoy them. But one more thing about that is if you would like something a little bit extra, then you can go to no such thing as a fish.com and you can find the details of our audio cassette. Now, this is not any normal audio cassette. You can't put it in your cassette player if you still have one. It is a USB. And that USB has all of those episodes, like I said, which are now up for free, but it also has an exclusive show that we filmed live in the QI offices, so you can see exactly what our office is like. And, I mean, apart from that, it's a really beautiful little cassette, which is really an awesome thing to have on your shelf in your house. So, enjoy this show, hope everything's good, get the cassette if you fancy it, and we'll see you all on the other side. Okay, on with the podcast. Hello and welcome to another work from home episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with Anna Chazinski, Andrew Hunter-Murray and James Harkin. And once again, we have gathered round our microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one. That's my fact. My fact is NASA fixed its Mars probe by getting it to whack itself with a shovel. Did NASA send a shovel with the probe just in case it needed something to whack itself with, like in a cartoon? <laughs> and did, yeah. did NASA, once they had it hitting itself with a shovel, did it go, stop hitting yourself, mate, stop hitting yourself? Why are you hitting yourself? <laughs> so whack is, uh, as James pointed out to me in an email, not the correct term. Technically, it was uh, a little push it was a little shove but it's been reported as a whack by most of the media i wouldn't call it a shove it was a gentle <laughs> caress yes uh nasa wow. fixed its mars probe by gently caressing it with a shovel stop <laughs> caressing yourself <laughs> <laughs> no really stop it we can see the video Dad. <laughs> oh shit okay <laughs> sorry i'll put that away um <laughs> So yeah, so um, this is um, this is the uh, Mars probe that landed uh, late 2018. It was in November, and it's the Mars Insight mission. And the idea is that it's going deep into the interior of Mars, which has never been done before. All previous missions have just looked at the landscape, taken bits of soil. This one's drilling down to tell us about the planet. As NASA actually puts it on its own website, it's the first mission to give Mars a thorough checkup since the planet formed 4.5 billion years ago. So it's it's a beautiful little thing that they're trying to test out here. And as they were using the machine that was drilling down, the drill itself, which is called the mole, suddenly got stuck and they couldn't work out why. And this happened in March of last year. And so for a whole year, they've desperately been trying to work out how we can get this shovel to work again because it's only gone something like 35 centimeters into the ground when it's meant to go a full three to five meters, roughly. 
So they have no idea what to do. And um, they've been thinking a whole year. They've had labs set up where they've tested every scenario of what they could do. And the answer, finally, that came to them is just give it a little caress. And uh, and it might work. And it has. So it's working again. Yeah. Initially, they tried to caress it on the side, didn't they? Because uh, yes. they tried to move it to the side of the hole which it was drilling, uh, and that might give it a bit more purchase. Um, but then they decided they're going to have to push down on it, and the problem is that there is a massive tether. So the mole is attached to the main probe with like a piece of wire, and what they didn't want to do was push that and then damage the tether and then not be able to do anything with it. Because if you damage mm-hmm. that, then there's no moling, there's no, no nothing. Mm-hmm. And it's also it's not a drill. It's um, kind of a drill would spin round, right? Wait, James, did you just say this is not a drill? (laughs) (laughs) This is not a drill. Um, So a drill would spin round, uh, but there's nothing for it to grab onto. So you can't kind of spin round like a drill. It's kind of an up and down thing. So it kind of pulls itself up and then slams itself down and hopefully makes it a little bit in. And then it keeps Mm. doing that again and again and again and again and hopefully gets about three or four meters in there. Do you guys know why it's called Insights? Uh, because they are sighting the inside of Mars. I think, well, it's a clever double play on words. So NASA's just full of um, these stupid acronyms where it obviously gives stuff a name and then thinks, well, we better attribute, you know, uh, something to each of those initials. So it's called INSIGHT. It stands for Interior Exploration Using Seismic Investigations, Geodesy and Heat Transport. And it actually had to have a name change. Uh, so it, it used to be slightly more catchy than that. It was originally called the Geophysical Monitoring Station, which was GEMS, but uh, NASA suddenly went, oh, God, we've already got one of those uh, that's in, in the working. So they had to change its whole name so that it didn't wow. coincide with another one. Do you know that Insight has won an Emmy? Has it? No. Yeah. What for? It won an Emmy for um, Outstanding Original Interactive Programme. Um, so NASA did some coverage of this landing and of its drilling and shoveling and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And you could go online and you could interact with the with the show. And um, it won an Emmy for it. It was That's a bad so year cool. for TV that year, wasn't it? <laughs> it was a bad year, yeah. Uh, and one other thing about InSight, um, do you know that they have named a rock on Mars? Oh, okay. So um, when it landed, when the InSight lander landed... It kind of knocked a little rock. It's only about the size of a golf ball, and it rolled about three feet away. And do you know what they named this rock? Okay. Uh, They named it after a famous thing. A famous thing. Did they name it after a rock star? After some some famous people. Oh. Uh, The Rolling Stones. Uh, Correct! Ah, Because it was was a Rolling Stone. Wow. um, They've named this one tiny rock on Mars, which is about the size of a golf ball. They've named it after the Rolling Stones. It's almost (laughs) more of an insult naming that after the Rolling Stones. It really is. It's not like naming a star or a a moon or something, is it? And isn't it? It's named after all the Rolling Stones. They haven't picked one. That one rock is now just the full band. It's called the Rolling Stones Rock. Right. Although they could have called it the Rolling Rock or the Rolling Stone, because that's effectively what it is. Yeah. But yeah. they've just decided Rolling Stones Rock. Did did they observe whether the Rolling Stone has gathered any moss? Well, we might come to moss later in the show. Eh? <laughs> Ooh. Spoiler, spoiler. Just this was a very, very low tech solution that they used. The um, the whacker spade shovel mole thing. They mm. It's whacker moles. Let's just call it whacker mole. Whack- We've already got a phrase. <laughs> Caressa mole, Anna. Sorry, that's a very different game. <laughs> 
Um, anyway, this was a very low-tech solution. So uh, there was another one I found during the Apollo 11 mission. Oh, yeah. And this was when they'd all got back on the lunar module and they hadn't yet pressed the button to say, take us back to Earth. And Armstrong was wearing his backpack on the module and it smashed into the switch. There was one switch they needed to turn on the engine and begin the flight back to Earth. And he was wearing his big clunky space backpack and it just broke the whole switch off. Right. And they, like it was fine because they just shoved a felt tip pen that Buzz Aldrin had been using. Don't know why he had a felt tip pen on Apollo <laughs> Eleven, mm. but um... you do. If you watch the moon footage, when Neil Armstrong turns round, it says "dickhead" on his back. <laughs> <laughs> That's what that was for. He still yeah. keeps that pen on him to this day, Buzz Aldrin. He stops. Yeah, he takes it Does everywhere he? he goes. Yeah, it's is what... it still working? Yeah, it's still got ink. It's still. <laughs> it's... That, in many ways, is more impressive than the moon landings. <laughs> I don't suppose he still uses it. Does no, he? No, he carries like... it as his lucky charm. It was the thing that got them off the moon. So yeah. Because um, when we met him, Dan, you did have the word "dickhead" on your back, but that wasn't him who wrote it. No, I'm, I'm still, I'm still trying to find who did that. Um, it's got similar handwriting to you, James, but I don't want to make any accusations. Um, it's interesting. There's a, I found a fun term for the idea of whacking something to make it work again, which is um, percussive maintenance, and. It's it's a thing that actually is recommended by so many different people, people who work in the electronics industry. Um, there was a whole thing about the fact that um, if a soldered connection needed to reconnect, sometimes it would lose its connection. And just by whacking it, you could make it sort of reconnect. So there's been so many examples of percussive maintenance uh, throughout the years. In NASA territory, Skylab, uh, when that went up, there was a bit of a problem on the outside of it. And the way that the astronauts fixed that was during a spacewalk was to hit it. Uh, and that made it work again. Um, so that was very useful. But then there was also uh, this great airplane called the Blackbird, the SR-71 Blackbird. Have you guys heard of this? I think so. This is a bird. Uh, sorry, this is a plane. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's Superman. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a plane that um, flew so high and fast that when it was up there, the body of the plane would stretch because of you know the the materials would stretch and no, um, no, yeah yeah on, yeah absolutely um oh god so I didn't... can i just can i just repeat what you just said you said so it went so fast that the body would stretch you know because like the body would stretch i didn't expect for this to get picked up i don't know where, where to go from here that was not an acceptable explanation dan is it the case that the pilots will be sitting at the controls and then suddenly they go whoa and then they'd be sitting in the third row yeah is it the people who are on the plane are going i've got a lot more leg room than i used to have <laughs> Well, I thought that was a thing with planes, that when you go to a certain altitude, materials can stretch and shrink. I thought that was a, a classic thing. You've got to collect more information on it in order to <laughs> elucidate it for the rest of us who don't know about it. Well, let's imagine that. Let's let's just accept that this grew and shrunk. No, we're not accepting it. OK, well... I'm, uh... I'm ready to accept it. Come on. Let's accept that this thing is stretched, okay. like Stretch yeah. Armstrong. So Go the, on. The idea was that they built a plane whereby the panels didn't necessarily meet on the ground. There was a gap between them so that when it got to that height and it stretched, they would lock into each oh. other and then it could continue flying in perfect harmony at that height. When it landed back on the ground, they would then bash it back into shape of making those gaps again for the next flight. Hang on, I'm wow. a bit confused now about how if the panels didn't meet on the ground yeah. and then it stretched apart <laughs> it's, it's in a good. I know what you're going to say, and it's a good uh, question. Yeah. <laughs> Are you sure it didn't squash? It feels like because it would be so cold up there, 
because it, it's mm. a lot colder in the sky, it feels like the materials would shrink. Yeah, it's that, another good point. Um, mm. Mm. <laughs> well, it sounds like an amazing plane. It sounds like a hell of a plane. I'm sorry I didn't get to fly on it. <laughs> It could, you know, how things if they go faster than the speed of light, they they shrink. Maybe it's that thing. Maybe it's the um, Einstein thing. I can only thank you all for trying to help me out with it, but um, <laughs> I don't think we're going to get anywhere constructive. Did, did you know there's a gorilla, there's a gorilla suit on the ISS? Is that okay? Yeah. What for? For fun. They just set no. one up. Yeah, and they just wear it sometimes on the ISS. What? Isn't that the least practical thing you've ever heard of being sent up there? And it, so it's not a sort of backup spacesuit. They'd run out of spacesuit. <laughs> oh, my God. It's useful. Imagine the pictures coming from the next time that people go on the moon and you've got three of them in spacesuits and one guy's like, oh, for fuck's sake, I'm going to do the gorilla suit, haven't I? <laughs> really enjoy the short straw. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in 2013, there was a hole in the ISS uh, and it was probably caused by a tiny micrometeorite. The hole was just a few millimetres to a few centimetres wide, and they plugged it using an astronaut's thumb. Hmm. Oh. So did the astronaut have to stay next to the wall for the rest of the mission? Yeah, he's still there. <laughs> he's still there, yeah. Um, no, they cut his thumb off. and then just plugged <laughs> the guy. Uh, No, they uh, eventually used some sealant, but just until they managed to get the correct tools there, uh, he had to stand there with his thumb wow. in the dike. That's great. Very cool. What's the story about the Netherlands dike and the person who shoved their thumb in it to stop the whole country flooding? That, that's... What you just said is the whole story. That's it. That's the story. It was well told, I thought. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just talk about one more lo-fi NASA fix? It's one of the best. It's in 2012 when the ISS was repaired with a toothbrush. Uh, so, yeah, this was that they, they have four units on the outside that power the ISS and they're covered in solar panels and one of them broke. And so the space, space people, the what do you call them? Astronauts. Uh, the astronauts had to climb outside to fix it, but the bolt was stuck because it had gathered so much space dust that they couldn't quite get a handle on the bolt properly. And they didn't know how to get rid of the space dust. And they were like, well, we need some sort of little kind of brush, sort of hard, stiff... And they use a toothbrush. And I don't know how they decided which astronaut sacrificed their toothbrush yeah. for the sake of this bolt, but they brushed all the dust off. And then after that, you're sort of brushing your teeth with space dust, which is probably, it's probably worth the sacrifice. Feels like it would be more abrasive than a normal toothbrush. Yeah. Might help you brushing your teeth with space dust. It could yeah. be the new thing. Colgate might be about to release the next space <laughs> dust toothpaste. Uh, here's another tip. If you have a gap in your teeth, just go up to very high altitude and it'll all shrink together. <laughs> okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that we don't know what the Greek philosopher Plato's real name was. Plato was his wrestling nickname. So this is um, from historian Diogenes Laertius, um, who wrote a lot about Plato, and he said that his name came from broad-shouldered, which is what Plato means, uh, and that it was due to his physique, because he had big muscles, he was known as being a wrestler, he apparently competed at the Isthmian Games... Uh, and we don't really know what his actual first name is. According to Diogenes Laertius, it might have been Aristocles, 
uh, which means best reputation, but we don't really have much historical evidence for that. So most people think that probably isn't true, um, but we do think that probably he got his name Plato because he was broad-shouldered. Well, so I read there's um, three possibilities for why he got called Plato in the same category. One was broad shoulders, one was possibly breadth of eloquence, um, but my favourite one <laughs> is that he had a massive forehead. That's the third one. <laughs> Did he? That supposedly had a very wide forehead, and that might have been why he got called that. There was a, the, the thing he took part in sounds really intense, this thing called the Pancration, mm, which yeah. is it's, um, it's a kind of fighting where you can do everything pretty much except biting people and gouging out their eyes. Um, it's a bit like mixed martial arts, and it's so violent that when the Olympics came back, it was the only ancient Olympic event that was not brought back. And the Archbishop really? of Lyon said, we allow wow. all events to be reinstated except Pancration. <laughs> wow. And that's what Plato was doing. He was doing the ultra-violent thing. Although he was doing the least violent of this admittedly extremely violent practice, wasn't he? <laughs> <I think. laughs> he was up there, but not quite peak. Boxing was maybe the worst. And then the wrestling was seen as, you know, the wimps element of, of Pancrating, I think. But you still had people like the other um, nickname, wrestling nickname I found was Mr. Fingertips, who was a 4th century BC wrestler in the Pancration. And he was called Mr. Fingertips because his strategy was every time a game started, he'd bend the opponent's fingers back until they snapped. And then that usually would mean that they caved immediately. Wow, that is a pretty basic move in wrestling, isn't it? <laughs> it's only one ahead of pulling someone's hair or like kneeling down behind them and then getting someone to push them over. I don't know. It's pretty good. It's like if you're if you're doing a thumb war and you immediately break your opponent's thumb, then the thumb war is one at that point. I don't know. I always think bending people's fingers back is like a Chinese burn. It's a bit cheap, you mean? It's a not bit, fair play. It's a bit playgroundy. Yeah. Mm. It's it's a seminal move in modern day WWF and WWE wrestling. It what breaking someone's fingers, holding their hands and gripping them and bending them. It can lead to ten minutes. <laughs> Honestly, it's 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 a biggie in the world of wrestling. Is that is that serious, Dan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You they it's a bend big, each other's fingers back. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a move that you see a lot. It's it's almost a way of the wrestlers during a big match getting their breath back together. You know, it's it's their <laughs> it's their break moment, but they really bring the theatrics. It just makes it look like you're doing one of those country dances where someone skips underneath the arch that you're forming. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if, like, you know, modern day boxing and so on. Half of the whole thing is the smack talk that happens. You know, the taunting and mm. so on. I'm just wondering what Plato smack talk would be like because he would dish out new philosophical ideas that would crush your whole understanding <laughs> of the earth. How could you fight once you've been told about existence and your place in the universe? I don't know. I think it's particularly easy to punch that guy in the face, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> he might have shouted that you were a featherless biped. That was one of his human slams. That was how, that was how he defined man. And I think it was uh, sort of saying we're really no different from creatures in a lot of ways. But then he came up against Diogenes the Cynic, who said that's a ridiculous way to define man. And he brought to Plato a live chicken and plucked it in front of his very eyes. Wait, sorry, he plucked the chicken live? Because if so, Diogenes has a lot of questions to answer. I think it's better than killing a chicken just in order to pluck it to make a philosophical point. I think it's tough to pluck a live chicken. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a real skill. If you can pluck, I've never tried. But my frankly, 
He should have been called Diogenes the Optimist if he thought he was going to get away with it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he was a wrestler too and got it in a headlock or something. Perhaps Plato helped out. But Plato was forced to amend his definition of man to a featherless biped with broad, flat nails. Okay. And then that distinguishes us from the chicken. Does that mean like fingernails and toenails and stuff? It just means, basically, I think he looked for the first thing that we have that a chicken doesn't. Quite a lot to pick from. He went for the nails. But he yeah, went... chickens have got nails. But they don't. No, have... but they got ben... they got bendy like. Oh ones, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah, they're not flat. Wow, it, it feels like a bit of a reach from Plato at that point. Yeah. <laughs> but here's what I'm thinking. Right, he said broad, flat nails. Plato yeah. means broad. We don't know where the broad bit comes from. Maybe he had extremely broad nails. <laughs> wow. <laughs> he just had really flat fingers. Maybe that's where he got his name. It's just oh. the first thing you notice about him. Diogenes, like, if Diogenes was taking the piss out of you, I think that's pretty bad, because he lived in a barrel. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't he? Did he? <laughs> yeah. yeah, he did, if yeah. Someone's, if someone's coming up to you taking the piss, and it's like, mate, you live in a barrel. He lives in a barrel, <laughs> and he's a cynic? Was he Oscar the Grouch? Who is this? <laughs> he basically, oh my God, he basically was. Yeah. I think Oscar the Grouch is based on him. I think he was just trying to show the vanity of human vanity, you know. Yeah, he lived in a jar to tell humans that they were all dickheads. Wait, a jar and... or a barrel? Because I think a jar I... is worse. A, a jar, jar is smaller normally. Yeah. It's called a jar usually, but I think it was quite a large one. I don't think he squeezed himself into like a jam jar. <laughs> yeah. But he also, um, he masturbated in his barrel. Oh, no. Well, I hope it wasn't a jar then, because that would be a hell of a view to everyone <laughs> passing by. People didn't find that amusing. And he used to defecate in theatres and stuff, didn't he, Diogenes? <laughs> oh, wait. He was trying to eschew society, I think, is yeah. the point. I might be wrong about this, because I don't know much about Diogenes, but I think that's what he was trying to do. And he was trying to go against societal norms. Yeah. And he lived in a barrel, but then he still needed to masturbate because he was, you know, he had urges. Uh, and he couldn't leave his barrel, so he had to do it in a barrel. But Wait, people didn't like it very much. Dan, why did you say just there it was so it was so particularly bad to masturbate in the jar? Well, your barrel, no one's going to see inside. You can do that in private in your barrel. <laughs> your jar, you're, you're David Blaining it. People are going to come and visit to see you, see what you're up to. <laughs> Shit, did David Blaine do that? If I'd known that, I would have watched his whole, you know, stuck in a box gig. I'm not sure if he did. Did he leave the jar to go into the theatre to have a poo? Or did he have the jar taken into the theatre? What, like roll it along like a hamster wheel? Yeah, and then, and then sort of poo out of the end of it. I think this might have been at two different stages of his life. <laughs> <laughs> I think he might have been past his barrel years so he's pooing in theatre years. Yeah. You've got to keep it fresh for people, haven't you? You've got to keep mixing it up. <laughs> he famously, the thing about masturbating was he always said... It, because I think he begged for food, maybe, and yeah. he said it would be better if I could satisfy my hunger by rubbing my belly in the same way that I satisfy my sexual needs by rubbing my genitals. Mm. That was his. That was his saying. Wow, <laughs> that was his catchphrase. <laughs> Pretty bold decision by the Sesame Street writers to base Oscar the Grouch on this guy. <laughs> there are a lot of unedited scenes in there. <laughs> Um, he actually, he, it's quite interesting. He gave an explanation for the origin of the word cynic, Diogenes. So someone oh, really? said, why do they call you Diogenes the cynic? And it meant Diogenes the dog-like, as it's from the same oh, root yeah. as like canine. Okay. And I think he said... So I just do a poo wherever I want. <laughs> <laughs> I just shit everywhere. 
No, he said it's because I fawn upon those who give me anything and bark at those who give me nothing. That's oh, cynicism. That's where that's coming oh, from, wow. according to him. That's interesting. Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is Andy. My fact is that the first ever internal combustion engine was partially powered by explosive moss. Cool. <laughs> wow! <laughs> oh, God. Now, people who <laughs> listen to this podcast might not know about Andy's obsession with moss, uh, because we've never let him do a moss fact before. <laughs> uh, but for one of our books, was it the last book we did or the one before? Uh, I think it was the one before. Yeah. Book of the year 2018, maybe. Um, we had an article on Club Moss, and it was Andy's absolute fave. It was the longest <laughs> article in the book at the time of submission, and weirdly, it was the shortest by the time it actually <laughs> made it to print. So... <laughs> Revenge time. Um, so this is a, an internal combustion engine, you know, powered by small internal explosions. And the thing which provided the explosions was this moss. Uh, the machine was called the Pyreolophore, and it was patented in 1807, which I find wow. unbelievably early. Um, yeah. As in, the patent was signed by Napoleon for this machine. Um, and it was patented by a French inventor called Nicephor Niepce, and this machine ran a boat. Uh, the engine was attached to a boat, and it was full of lycopodium dust, which is from a particular species of club moss. Uh, and it, it's very explosive, this stuff, because uh, it has lots of surface area, and it's 50% fat. So it, it goes bang quite readily when exposed to flame. And it, there was a boat going around up and down rivers. That's incredible. I hadn't, I didn't, because I, I didn't look into this specific one. And it actually powered a boat. Yeah. But I think it was quite a small boat, wasn't it? It wasn't a huge boat, yeah. Was it, was it on a model boating pond? It wasn't I'm a gonna... model boat. It was, was it not? Because I did read one place that said it was a toy boat, but I couldn't tell whether it was or not. I mean, all boats are toy boats if, you know... If you're a giant. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it wasn't it wasn't a massive boat. I think let's go that far. Okay. But it wasn't only a centimetre long. It was somewhere in between the two. <laughs> it was somewhere in between a centimetre and the Titanic. Yeah, exactly, right. yeah. Nice. That, that's absolutely clarified that for me. Thank okay, you. It was helpful. pretty clever how it worked, though, wasn't it? Because it, it would use the energy from this combustion engine and it would suck water in from the front and push it out the back and then it would use that movement to power it forward. Yeah, that's it was pretty awesome. clever. Um, ah. And um, just on a little tangent, Niepce, the inventor, it was him and his brother who did it. Um, Niepce is also the man who produced one of the first ever photographic images 20 years yeah. later. Imagine yeah. being at the beginning of those two technologies. Did he, did he use the... Because uh, photographic flash was in its sort of early days then, wasn't it? And they yeah. used all sorts of explosives. And I think they used this in, photograph in flash photography. And I wonder if he used that. Was he a one-trick pony and he only ever used his club moss? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think his photography, being as it was the very, very first one that ever existed, was before flashes, yeah. to be honest. Oh, the first job. one yeah. that he did, it was, it was called The View from the Window at Le Gras. Uh, and it was in 1826, and the exposure time was eight hours. So I think Flash <laughs> wouldn't have helped much in that case. And, don't blink, don't blink. <laughs> <laughs> and the, um, the light was a problem because they didn't have flashes, but they used the light of the sun. Uh, but obviously the sun is not in the same place for eight hours. And so mm -hmm. if you look at this picture, it looks a bit like a charcoal etching, to be honest. It's not a, you know, it's not 
4K. But um, <laughs> you can see the sunlight on the left-hand side and the right-hand side because of the <laughs> really? amount of time it took uh, to, so cool. yeah. to expose. Can I just say about Club Moss quickly? Um, oh, yes. I just want to mm. formally apologise, Andy. It's amazing. Thank Club you. Club Moss is incredible. I watched an amazing video by a buddy of ours, mutual buddy of the podcast, Steve Mould, uh, from the Festival of Spoken Nerd, where he has powder, uh, powdered version of it, and showing just how hydrophobic it is. So the idea is that you could dip your hand into a big body of water mm. if you have the powder just laying on top of the surface area and come back out, your hand will be sort of latexed a bit. It looks like you've gone marigold glove, but you'll have a completely dry hand that you can powder off. I mean, it's an extraordinary wow. substance. I've never heard of that before. That's very And you cool. can set fire to water using it, can't you? Because yeah. it's so extremely flammable and it coats the water without you know being absorbed by it. Uh, so you can sort of pour water covered in club moss spores out of a jar and then set fire to it. And it looks pretty cool. There are lots of uses. Um, so it was, as Anna said, it was used for uh, flash powder for uh, photographers before they invented flash bulbs. It was also used to coat suppositories. I'm not exactly sure why. Okay. Is it the same reason as your hydrophobic thing, as in basically I, you don't want anything to stick to it, basically? Yeah. Ah, I th- yeah. Yes, in fact, it would be that because it was also used as a coating for condoms then because it was used specifically to stop the latex in condoms from sticking to the rest of the condom. This is before wow. we had modern condoms. Yeah. Got it. You said condoms a lot of time in that sense. <laughs> <laughs> it felt very, felt very racy saying that all those times. <laughs> I suppose the problem is, basically, you're using spores... And it's not a good idea to put spores in your vagina or anus. No. Why is that in case you give birth to sort of a moss-human hybrid? <laughs> no, it's in case it goes off like a flash bulb. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. It explodes inside you. And that actually is where the term flashing used to come from. Um, because women used to go around parks and then open their big raincoats and it would be like a camera flash. Yep. That's incredible. Amazing etymology. I never knew that. I'm not I'm not buying it. I knew you were trying to make me believe that and I'm not buying it, mate. No, Dan, it's true, it's true. Diogenes the Cynic used to stick his bum out of the barrel and he'd go, Hey, look at this. Bang. Um No, but yeah, James, you're absolutely right. Sticking spores in yourself is a bad idea. But this moss was even used to coat surgical gloves. So you would literally have it designed to go in the internal organs of people. But you wouldn't need the glove, right? If you were were a doctor doing a finger up the bum check, you would just need to coat one finger in in this club moss. And you would save... What does that do? Well, you're saving four unused fingers of a glove. So... You know, that's that's handy. From what you're saying, it sounds like if you're a doctor, then you could use a glove five times in five different bottoms (laughs) because you've got five fingers. Is that that what you're saying? That's literally what I'm saying, yeah. What would you say? No offence, mate. Honestly, it's just I only had the middle finger left. (laughs) I only had the thumb left. I know I've got broad nails. (laughs) (laughs) They call me (laughs) Play-Doh. Um, do you know some people who like moss? Are the Japanese? Oh, okay. yes. My Japanese friend is obsessed with it. As is that one true? Data point. Yeah, yeah. She goes around collecting it. That's so interesting because I read this on the internet and I thought if I say this, probably lots of Japanese people will write in and say we're not obsessed with moss. <laughs> so I'm so glad that we have at least one datum. Um, but there was a book written. Uh, in 2011 called Moss is My Dear Friends and it sold 40,000 copies in Japan 
And wow. these days you can get moss themed drinks and you can get um, like a ring which has moss in it. So instead of like a diamond, it sprouts out a little bit of moss. Cool. Uh, <laughs> and actually, the Japanese national anthem contains the word moss. Does it? No. It genuinely does. Um, it goes, may your world go on for thousands of years until pebbles merge into one giant rock that's covered with moss. That's great. Beautiful. It probably sounds better in the original language. I do think so, yeah. <laughs> so moss, actual moss, which is a club moss is an actual moss, but actual moss is a real lifesaver. So it was used a lot in the First World War on wounds because they ran out of bandages. Oh. So many people were getting injured, a lot of exposed flesh, a lot of stuff was rotting, and they suddenly realised they could stuff a wound with moss. And first of all, it's incredibly good at absorbing liquid. So if you're bleeding, it's very good at absorbing that. It can absorb 22 times its own weight in liquid. It's twice as absorptive as cotton. Uh, And it's because 90% of the cells in moss are dead. So they're just like water bottles waiting there to be filled. And also it makes the environment around it really acidic, which makes it sterilizing. So it also sterilizes wounds. So if you get a little stuff, just shove some moss in it. I think, is it a very specific kind of moss that they use? Yeah. Or can you use any old... You can't use any old moss, <laughs> no. can you? Oh, it's, it's sphagnum moss, sphagnum. isn't it? Yeah. Sphagnum's awesome. They used to use it for diapers as well. Ancient cultures would put it sort of in a bag-like uh, casing and put it around the children. So when they went to the toilet, it acted the same. It's another reason why Diogenes kept it in his barrel, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> sphagnum is really good. So there are about 380 species. It's a whole um, genus, is sphagnum moss. Um, but in the First World War, they had to harvest it from peat bogs because peat bogs are largely sphagnum moss, basically. Um, mm-hmm. And by the end of 1916, they were making a million moss dressings every single month. Wow. So it was a huge wow. endeavour to create all that yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. Sphagnum is great. Sphagnum is the main ingredient of peat. And that is... What's your favourite, Andy? Is it sphagnum moss um, or club moss or just general mosses in general? I think... Or Kate moss? <laughs> it's not Kate moss. Um, I think sphagnum... Imagine Kate moss. Kate moss is your third favourite moss. That is a good <laughs> Including moss from the IT crowd. I think Kate is my fourth favourite moss. Kate oh. doesn't even list. Okay, it's time for our final fact of the show, and that is Chizinski. My fact this week is that we have arches in our feet for the same reason that we fold slices of pizza. If we do that, what? which some people does. <laughs> Is it because feet are so delicious? <laughs> yeah. They're cheesy, they're cheesy. We don't want to spill any of the cheese. It's to stop the cheese falling off. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, this is a thing that um, Americans do a bit more than us. I think the pizza folding, I think maybe because they have bigger slices. So you fold a slice of pizza and it makes it stronger. And a new study has just been done into foot arches. And it's been discovered that this is the reason for one of the arches in our feet. And it's actually the lesser appreciated arch. So this study (laughs) is about... (laughs) You've got the big attention-seeking arch, right? Which is the longitudinal arch, which runs from front to back. And then you've got the transverse arch, which runs the width of your foot. And you can really see the transverse arch when you look at the top of your foot. It's the lump on the top of your foot. And essentially, they've looked at that and they applied lots of pressure to it, these scientists. They got, uh, really, they got cadavers and they put weights on them. And then they cut the transverse arch to see what kind of weight they could hold comparatively. And they found that uh, the stiffness of a foot is reduced by 40% when you cut that transverse arch. So it's there for stiffness. Hmm. And it's what is an arch cool. made of? What? It's 
bone, what? ligament, tendony, all that shit. The usual shit okay. that the body's made of. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, That's really helpful. Yeah. Thanks, Dr. Anna. <laughs> well, you know, it's bits of bone and ligament. The foot yeah. does have a quarter of the bones in your body. Both your feet combined wow. have a quarter of the body's bones. Uh, so it's really, really important that our feet are this stiff. It's one of the things that really distinguishes us from other great apes is that we have the arches in our foot generally, which allow us to be bipedal and to walk and run, particularly over really long distances. So if you look at the feet of chimps, then they're completely flat. And that means that they can mm. grab onto trees and stuff like that, but they cannot run a marathon. So in your face, chimps. Well, I know what you're saying about in your face, chimps, but what I was thinking is what would you rather have feet that let you climb a tree or feet that let you run a marathon? Mm, it depends on what you're trying to escape from. <laughs> yeah, if you're trying to escape from Paula Radcliffe, probably climb up a tree. Climb a tree. If you're trying to escape from Tarzan, exactly, he'd probably beat you at a marathon yeah. as well. Yeah, I th- yeah, he definitely would. But actually, I think it um, it doesn't matter whether you've got this uh, thing or not. So there was a study of people who visited the Boston Museum of Science, and they studied all of their feet. Uh, and they found that some... I know, what a weird <laughs> gig for a scientist just to hang around a museum and say, hey, can I look at your feet? Um, but they found that some people had a mid-tarsal break, okay? And what that means is that the middle of the foot bends quite easily as you push yourself off the ground. So one in 13 people has weird folding ape-like feet. And if you wow. have this and you walk on a beach, you might see there's more of a ridge in the middle portion of your footprint, which shows that that's where your foot basically folds as you mm. step. Ah. And most people don't know they've got this, which is very exciting. I think it would matter if you were doing a marathon every day. Yeah, you that's know, true. If you're kind of doing a lot of long distance running, it would probably start to hurt quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. although it hurts all the time anyway if you do lots of long distance running, so you probably wouldn't notice. That's fair enough. Um, like Anna says, though, the arches are for stiffness. So if you didn't have an arch going transversely, mm-hmm. so going from yeah. left to right, and you had flat feet, then you wouldn't have any stiffness in your feet at all, and they'd mm. just be like floppy bits of cardboard. Yeah, well, that would be a problem. Yeah, that's true. Flopping around. So, Anna, also, if this applies to American pizzas, which are much longer than, say, a British pizza, if you have smaller feet, do you need the arch as much? I guess you'd need them less because you're bearing less weight. I mean, it would, it would be proportional. Uh, and it's, it's actually a thing called Gaussian curvature, which is something that we briefly discussed years ago on the show when we were talking about corrugated iron. And it's the amazing effect that... <laughs> You'll all remember that <laughs> classic episode. <laughs> I think it was in the 60s, so we just put a load of um, episodes back up for free, and I think it's one of those. It <laughs> is. Yeah, so it will be. Good news, right. guys. It was an absolute classic of the genre. Uh, highly recommend the Corrugated Iron Session. And we talked yeah. partly about how the shape of that makes it stronger, and it's the same reason that, for instance, you can't crack an egg if you squeeze it really, really, really hard. And it's this thing that this guy uh, called... What? I, I mean, I think you, I can. Andy. I can. You can't. I can. You can't. Right. Look, you can't. I, I haven't seen an egg for weeks, can so I? frankly, <laughs> I can't at the moment. I have an egg downstairs. Can I run down and get it? Yeah. Yeah. Don't taunt me on camera by breaking one of your few available stocks of eggs. You won't be able to break it. You could break it if you shove your thumb into it, but if you just squeeze it, if I just squeeze it, you yeah. will break it. Should I genuinely do it or should we forget it and just move on? I mean, it's an enormous waste of time because you won't be able to do it. 
Or you'll cheat and shove your thumb in or bang it against the I'm bookshelf. I'm not going to cheat. And then you're going to be covered in egg. That's win-win, isn't it? <laughs> it's a win-win. You should do it. <laughs> you should put your face beneath it so that if you end up with egg on your face, you actually won't end up with egg on your face. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you do manage to do this at home, you know, try it if you want, as long as you don't, don't waste food. But if you've got an egg that's gone off, do it. Um, sometimes you'll get an egg which has got some kind of imperfections in it, and it is possible if your egg is not... You know, if there's a problem with your egg. Oh, here's yeah. the caveat. There we go. But most of the time, it is impossible to break an egg just by squeezing it. It is cool. Although, weirdly, I read that a way of really emphasising the Gaussian curvature, the strength of it, is to have a hyperbolic paraboloid, which is basically having something that's curved in two directions, a bit like our foot. And something that uses that is power stations. So, you know, if you look at a power station, it's curved. Uh, or oh, the cooling tower. A cooling tower, yeah. Um, it's yeah. sort of doubly curved because um, it's uh, rounded, but it's also got that curve going in. It's the opposite of what we have on our feet. So in your feet, your curves are both going in the same direction. Good point. Yeah. So if you turn your toes in, then it's bending in the same way that the um, left to right of your yeah. foot goes. I'm not explaining this very well, but it's more like a Pringle. If you think of a Pringle, it kind of from top to bottom, it curves one way and then from left to right it curves the other yeah. way that's why it's impossible to break a pringle if you <laughs> hold it in your hand and squeeze <laughs> i've tried it i can't do it this is my problem this is my problem with hyperbolic paraboloids is that it's always used as the example they go and pringles use this technology as well and it's like what are you talking about oh, the entire right. selling point of pringles is that you can crunch them they wouldn't be nearly as crunchy if they were flat oh yeah that'd be disgusting I would hate to eat a flat Pringle, <laughs> genuinely. Really? Yeah, that Why? sounds like an awful... It just it sounds creepy, doesn't it? You know what's even stronger? <laughs> if you have a corrugated iron-style crisp, like yeah. a Koi's kind of thing. A corrugated crisp, now that's a strong crisp. I can jump up and down on one of those things for days <laughs> and get nowhere. <laughs> have you guys heard of um, Douglas Mawson? No. I was just studying things about the soles of the feet. So he was an Antarctic explorer. Well, he wasn't Antarctic. He was Australian, actually. But he was exploring the Antarctic uh, in 1912. And he wasn't bothering with the pole. He was doing the most ambitious exploration of Antarctica ever. You know, thousands or hundreds of miles, at least, of Antarctica's very desolate interior. He was trying to, you know, explore it and map it. Anyway, on his way back, with 100 miles to go, his partner had died... He discovered that the soles of his feet had completely detached from <laughs> the foot what? above, genuinely. The, I don't think... Is that possible? It's, wow. There was blood and pus spurting out and the, just all the skin of his, the soles of his feet had come off. So somewhere there's an actual footprint laying in the <laughs> snow. Well, what he had to do was he had to tape the dead soles back onto his feet and put six pairs of socks on and then keep walking. Oh. <sighs> Wow. Well, anyway, wow. he survived. He survived and he became a national hero and he lived another 46 years. So the story has a happy ending in some senses. Mm. Yeah. He was lost for ages, wasn't he? Wasn't he away for years and his wife married someone else and then he returned to 12 years later and... That's Odysseus, you're thinking <laughs> That's... Sorry. Surely when he came back, he would be like an inch shorter than when he left. <laughs> <laughs> I would know my husband anywhere. And he was five foot ten. <laughs> you're five foot nine and a half. <laughs> um, some more stuff on feet. Yes, please. Um, yeah. yeah. Our feet are just really good. I think we should be more proud of our feet. And I think mm. we should just ban trainers. 
This is, I've sort of been brainwashed because there was that study that was quite famous in 2004 by that Harvard professor and then a book based on it called Born to Run, which is a really good book, but sort of about how we are, we're born to run and our feet are made for it. And if you look at, we did in this series of QI, the Raramuri people in Mexico, and they can run for hundreds and hundreds of miles and they just do it in as thin a sandal as possible because the ideal way to run is just to have a very thin surface to protect you from stones or needles and uh, then just use your foot's natural strength. You can tell how fast a runner you will be by how long your toes are. Can you? Really? So, yeah, sprint, sprinters have longer toes than non-sprinters. And that's partly because if you have longer toes, your feet stay in contact with the ground very slightly longer. Okay, is it also because, like, whoever gets to the end first, it can be any body part, can't it, that crosses the line <laughs> that determines yeah. the winner? So if you have massive clown feet... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's why so many of the best sprinters are clowns. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's Usain Bolt in the lead, but no, wait, here's Bobo the Clown behind him. He's going up fast. Hey, do you know, um, you know Einstein famously didn't wear socks? Yeah. Famously? That's, well, I that, think if you asked anyone for one fact about Einstein, that's what they'd say. That's why he won his Nobel Prize for, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty famous, isn't it? He was a non-sock wearing guy. I, I had never heard that before. I, heard had you I think it's okay. famous in the context of this podcast. I think, but yeah. No, I've ge- I genuinely never heard that, Dan. That's very interesting. Okay, Why so did he not wear socks? Didn't, like, well, we don't know. We, he never said the real reason, but there is a thought that it's because he suffered from excessive foot sweatiness. He was... <laughs> He was fa- he was he was famous in the military circles <laughs> for having sweaty feet to the point where he was not allowed uh, to uh, sign up for the Swiss military because they said that his feet were too sweaty. They don't ban you from the military because you got sweaty feet. He had flat he had flat feet, varicose veins, and excessive foot perspiration was what's on the official report. Maybe he would give away if they were trying to attack somewhere by night, uh, like a surprise attack. But we just then get squelching. <laughs> Surely, Dan, if you have sweaty feet, you would wear socks because that's going to soak up the sweat. I would wear socks lined with sphagnum moss, which can absorb 30 times its own weight of water. Yeah, no, as I say, we, he, never, he never said it was for that reason. It just, it's an interesting thing to notice. I think you wouldn't want to go around with wet socks. That would but be then you've just got nice. wet shoes instead, right? Yeah, but the sole, the, that inner padding is a bit more of a... I think you could suck more water into that and not be wet. No, I mean, because the, the worst thing about wearing no socks and trainers is the fact that it's too sweaty. Although it does make sense that the military wouldn't allow him in because that's why Prince Andrew was so desirable to the military, wasn't it? <laughs> it's, an inability to sweat is really something that they do look for. And interestingly, yeah. he's very good at holding pizzas when he's in Pizza Express because he's learned <laughs> the Gaussian curvature. You're <laughs> talented, man. Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to get in contact with any of us about the things that we've said over the course of this podcast, we can all be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, Andy, at Andrew Hunter M, James, at James Harkin, and Chazinski. You can email podcast at qi.com. 
or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or our website, no such thing as a fish.com. We've got all of our previous episodes up there. In fact, we have more than usual amounts of previous episodes up there. As we said at the top of the episode, we've just re-uploaded 52 episodes, the second year of fish, so do check them out. And uh, as we said last week, guys, we really hope you're doing okay. Uh, scary times out there, uh, but take care of each other. We'll be back again next week. See you then. Goodbye. Can I just say as well, I'm pretty sure Anna has lost signal. Either that or the club moss vagina material is not working very well because she's currently completely still on That's the Zoom a really video. good point. I took, that took me a long time to notice. I wonder how long she's been gone. I wonder how much she's She's not heard. gone. She's just stunned. <laughs> <laughs>